You're listening to the 2020 Marketing Series on the Growth Manifesto podcast, a Zoom video series brought to you by Web Profits, where we talk about how to drive business and marketing success through the rest of 2020. This episode is a discussion with Brett Kelly, founder and CEO of Kelly Partners, speaker and author of four best-selling books. We talk about what it takes to succeed in business from somebody that has taken a company from startup to being listed on the stock market and the lessons along the way. So let's get into it. Look, thanks for coming on the podcast. We're speaking to Brett from Kelly Partners. You founded the company back in 2006. Uh, so you're the founder and CEO and you listed on the ASX in 2017, you know, so, you know, so we um, started with profits as well around 2006. So we've had about the same amount of time in business, um, okay. um, but in the current business anyway. So, so maybe let's just start with that. Like, because obviously that's a, that's a fair journey and to, to be able to, to grow and then to, to list on the stock exchange, um, like that's the goal of a lot of organizations, right? Um, well, you've done it, you know, and so congrats on that. But I mean, could you just talk about that journey um, just quickly? Yeah, so Alex, I think that it, it looks like most things from a distance look relatively straightforward. Um, but in reality, there's a bit more depth to them. Um, <laughs> uh, um, I played a lot of cricket and I used to love play, taking guys out to the SCG and they'd stand behind the nets. They'd have an opinion on the game, but you'd stand them behind the nets and the test bowlers were bowling and they'd sort of flinch. Um, I always thought that was a good metaphor for the difference between what things look like and what they are in fact. Um, and so, look, I started my career in 1993 at Price Waterhouse as an undergraduate straight out of school. And I spent five years there. I then went into an investment bank and I lost my job from that bank. Um, they said, you know, Brett, you don't fit in with other people. You're a bit different. And, you know, we think that you might do better at something else. And um, I had worked out in that time. It was a really top flight advisory house that I really wanted to build a business, not simply be on the sideline as an advisor. And so I went back into chartered accounting because I'd read everything that Warren Buffett had written since I was about mm -hmm. 16. And Buffett, you know, talked about looking at businesses that were relatively certain to exist in 20 years time. And I thought death and taxes were life's two great certainties and I happened to be in tax. And so I looked at chartered accounting businesses and thought that they are typically not well run. They're not even thought of as a business. They're, they're just a guy with a desk and, he just is busy. And when you ask them what they're busy doing, they're not quite sure. And so I had had the frustration as a young guy working in these businesses. And ultimately when Beck and I had our first child in um, 2005, um, the partners of the firm I, were, I was at made an offer to me that was different to what they'd promised me when I joined the business 12 months before I went home and I said, Beck, like people in this industry are just, they just lie. They just say one thing and do another, which I just personally have an enormous problem with. And, um, <clears throat> and they do that to themselves. I call that delusion. And then they, they ultimately do that to other people. That's deception. And they do it to the clients, um, which is sad as well. And they say they can do things that they ultimately don't deliver. So 
I just started the firm. I said to Beck, look, I think I might start the firm, talked to two of my best mates and they said, I don't know why you haven't already. And so we started Kelly Partners Chartered Accountants on the 12th of June, 2006. And I had the benefit, I guess, of, of having been in, in a few different pursuits. When I lost my, my job from the investment bank, I turned around, my dad gave me a book called Think and Grow Rich. And it says, find people that have been successful and go and, do, go and ask them what, what they did to, to get their outcomes. And I, I like to call that, you know, how they achieve their goals. And so I'll show you, I've just got here. I ended up, um, you know, one of, my, one of my quests was I turned around and I wrote this book. I needed a reason to actually get people to speak to me. So I wrote to them and I said, my name's Brett Kelly. I'm 22. I'm unemployed, but I'm keen to learn. If you'll spend an hour with me, I'll ask you my 10 standard questions or 11 standard questions, put it in a book and get it out to other young people. And this was in 1997, I did this. I made 5,000 phone calls in three months. I got 34 out of the 80 people I approached. Three others phoned me. They couldn't do, they could do discussions, but they couldn't let me publish them. Yep. And then I was told by two, two publishers have been in the industry for 20 years. Hey, Brett, I've been in the industry 20 years. You know, um, there's eight new books published every day. You know, you're not Alan Jones. You're not, um, you're not Ray Martin or Alan Jones. So who's going to read your book? Mm -hmm. With that, I thought, right, I'll go and get Ray Martin in my book and I'll get him to, um, to, to interview me, which he did. I self-published and the book was a number one bestseller. Funnily enough, I got these things, you know, even at this point, I, I found a guy in the US and he'd written this book called A Thousand and One Ways to Market Your Book. And this is the 25th edition of that book. I've never met anyone in the industry in Australia that's ever read it, um, which I'll, I'll share the relevance of in a minute. And then I found yep. this guy that sold 500 million books, um, the Chicken Soup for the Soul series called the Mega yeah. University. And it's all, it's all CDs. I remember those those courses. I used to buy those like all the time back when it was CDs and stuff. And I can't throw them out because just in case there's good content in there still, right? <laughs> I found these. I, I did the library for our CBD business and I put all my old books and things in there and I found them the other day, which was great. And so, look, basically, that book taught me how to develop a product and sell it. Um, and and then I, I basically went on this journey where I said, there's a BBC 7-Up series where they follow kids every seven years. Um, from the age of five and it's the most successful documentary program in history and so i found that such an interesting study of of people and my yep. ultimate interest is people and why they do what they do right and so i then went on and i said look every seven years i'll write a book so i don't you know one of the biggest things i learned here was people get busy and even if they appear successful they achieve their goals often they end up in some other place and with outcomes that they weren't they weren't planning on, broken families, marriages, destroyed relationships all over the place because they'd been focused but not really conscious of where they were. And so I then wrote this book in 2005, which was Seven People Who Changed the World. So, and, and look, to, to give you an example of, of how much fun this was, in here, um, you know, I had Warren Buffett, I had um, Helen Keller, I had um, Nelson Mandela, Gandhi, Luther King. But in here, um, I've got, you know, Warren Buffett. And I wrote to Warren Buffett and said, look, I'm, you know, I'd really like to interview you. And, and 
would you sign my book? And so here's the letter that he wrote back, which I don't know if you can see that, but, you know, dear Brett from Warren Buffett. And so here's the second richest man in the world. Thanks for your nice letter in the books. I'm returning the book you requested to be autographed. However, I can't help you on your other requests. I'm cooperating with Alice Schroeder, who is working on a book about me and therefore regularly decline interviews from other authors. Now, Alice was paid the largest advance in history for a nonfiction book, 12 million US dollars, and the book became the snowball. And I had advance warning in 2005 that this book was coming out, uh, which yep. is amazing. I framed <laughs> my office. Um, but it showed that, again, what I learned in my first book was the people at the top, the real people at the real top, are very generous with their time and their ideas. They're comfortable in who they are. They'll help you and lift you up. Um, and so then I wrote this book. So then I started the business. And then in 2000, in 2006, in 2012, I interviewed 16 leading business owners. And then I've just published, um, came out on Saturday, this book called Investment Wisdom, which is nine of Australia's leading investors. So there's very few people that have a a book series of over 1200 pages focused on wisdom. And the reason I share that is that um, when I came to the business, I'd written two of these books. I'd done over 2000 professional speaking engagements. I'd sold 40,000 plus books. I really had some sense of how to put a website together, how to mm -hmm. do a business card, how to market, etc. And And what they were, you know, I'd read over 3000 books by the time I started our firm, because my interest was, you know, how does the world work? How do we fit in? What's this all about? But when you lose your job and you're not sure what you want to do, you, you kind of have some time for self-reflection, I guess. And, um, yeah. and what that meant was when I started the business, now often people look at our business and they say, well, you know, you just started here and grew like this and that looks pretty straightforward. Um, but under the cover, um, there's a there's a there's a whole um, you know journey and and you know three kids and and, and um, you know seven or eight house moves and and a whole story and so to pick up in 06 we've had our first child he's nine months old I start our firm in a small room about the size of my study here yep. there were four of us my wages bill was about three hundred thousand dollars a year I had two hundred thousand dollars worth of clients. Um, who I owned as part of my agreement with my employer. And, um, and so I, I was under some pressure to, to grow. So I guess I used all the experience that I'd had. I've been, you know, I've always been someone good under pressure, but key to what I did was I actually sold my apartment in Kirribilli and I moved to first rent in Lane Cove and then in St. Mary's. And then I bought a block of land and subdivided and lived in a place called Oxley Park, which is one suburb next to Mount Druitt. And then I lived for two and a half years there. Then I lived in Penrith for four years. And then I bought a house with cash in Mossman. So I grew up in Penrith, actually. That's where I, yeah. And then I left when I was 17 and I came to the city and I was like, that's it. <laughs> on the P and Avenue there. Uh, yeah. On the bridge, we bought the house in the middle of the GFC. But the reason I share that, Alex, is... Firstly, I came to the business with, with the full support of my wife who, you know, I've always regarded as a co-founder and wanted us to build the business and was prepared to sit there. She's an accountant as well, filling tax returns with a baby under the boardroom table and, 
and just do whatever it takes and allow me to do whatever it took to actually build the business. Now, I was working from 3.30 typically in the morning. I would work till 6.30. I'd get home at 7. I'd have dinner for an hour and I'd work from 8 till 11 and then I would go again. We had a young baby who'd wake up every three hours. So Beck wasn't doing much sleeping. So I didn't think I should either. And, <laughs> and so the first thing was I had the support of my wife who, who, you know, it's very trendy these days for both people to be pursuing um, their career at a hundred miles an hour. And, and that's great, but it's difficult for both of you to do that at the same time as having a very young child. Mm-hmm. And then, so that was a big sacrifice from Beck. And then secondly, I had sold my apartment that I'd bought and renovated and loved in Kirribilli. And I just didn't have the status anxiety around the suburb I lived in that seems to afflict most Sydney siders. It's, it's, I call it post-codalism in Sydney and it's a massive issue. You know, I'd go, I'd pitch for a client and people would say, oh, so where do you live? I drive a $6,000 secondhand Mitsubishi Magna that I'd picked up on a fire sale that they'd done and they'd say, well, you know, you live in Western Sydney and you drive a Magna. How does that work? Um, when I was trying to, to, to later buy firms. Um, and so that careful management of capital, you know, the big word in the middle of capitalist is capital. And you can't be a capitalist without capital. And if you're not born to the manor where mummy and daddy or someone else is writing you a check, and you don't want to give up all of your equity so that you effectively sell off your company before you start, then you need to cut your living expenses such that we, you know, Beck lived on a hundred bucks a week and she'd run the house on a hundred bucks a week. We pay our um, mortgage that was very, very small. You know, I was living in a duplex ultimately worth about $350,000. Those places now worth about $450,000. Most people, wouldn't do that. We then had two kids and I didn't buy a decent home by most people's standards until the business was about 10 years old, not eight years old. And by then I was um, 38. No. Yeah. 38. And I had worked since I was 18, like a crazy person um, uh, to, to build up a, Firstly, what I call your career capital, which is your, your skill set and the things, you know, the books you've written and the talks you've done and the travel you've done and the people you've met. I yep. have over 10,000 people in my mobile phone. Um, How many, I, sorry? Um, over over 10,000. Wow. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a bit of a tip for your listeners. If you go down to your, into your contacts on your Apple phone, at the bottom of the A to Z, there's a little hashtag and it shows you the number of contacts in your phone. So I've got 10,026 contacts in there today. Um, and so I regarded all of that as my capital, you know, 10,000 contacts, books I'd written, speaking engagements I'd done, all of the work I'd done five and a half years at PwC, I'd been through three other firms and everything I'd seen of the market. And then the 3000 books that I'd read, I'm just this huge believer you know, firstly, you need a supportive wife. Secondly, you need to manage your capital. And thirdly, you need to grow yourself if you want to grow a business. And so that's the story. We had a very clear strategy. I just went from the, the people that had taught me now were my heroes in business. And so yep. I nominated, I built a little model for how to build a business. And 
and I believe that first you have to be clear on your mission, clear on your values and clear on your vision. So that's the foundation. Uh, most people are up here operational and not down here foundational. When you're building the foundations, nobody gives you a pat on the back because you, you know, you're underground in muck and dirt and smelly stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but our mission was clear that private business owners employ more than 70% of Australians and that they should be able to get anywhere that they operate um, just as good financial tax and accounting advice as any large multinational because let's face it, employment is absolutely critical to people's sense of dignity. Yep. And, uh, you know, I was very passionate and still am about that. I said that we must take the best of the best. We must be the best at what we do. And our quality must be better than any big four firm or anyone else in the market. And that we would then use Walmart, the Walmart strategy that I got straight out of a book called um, by Sam Walton called, I think it's called Made in America. And he said, go where other people won't go and grow while people don't notice. And so I drew a map and I said, we would go to Central Coast and Norwest and Penrith and Campbelltown and Barrel and Mulgong. And I then went and either grew or bought the largest or second largest and oldest firms in each of those regions. Mm -hmm. I used my M&A background to understand how to put a deal together in the right way, which is uncommon for accountants who don't really know or have deal experience. And I said that we would get big before anyone noticed. So we'd have one brand, a centralized back office. We would own these growing markets because they're all growing above trend. So CBD, Lower North Shore, Eastern Suburbs, no one has babies. Mostly people are old, so there's not a lot of growth. And the growth, the money that's there is often had an account for 50 years. So why not grow where, why not grow where the economy is growing above trend? which is typically outside the immediate CBD. And in, a, in our profession, people are kind of too snobby to go outside. You know, again, they're postcodal. You know, you say, Alex, you grew up in Penrith and people think that there are gangs roaming the streets out there with machetes. <laughs> I actually grew up in Emu Plains and they think, yeah, right. oh, were well, no, the no, emus there no, running no, around? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, they were. Very nice golf course, beautiful river. Very yeah. cool part of the world, actually gorgeous. And, um, so, you know, again, because people don't get out of their own suburb much in Sydney, there was all this opportunity out there. And um, mm -hmm. now we have the largest uh, and, and generally oldest firm in certainly in Wollongong, in the Southern Highlands, in Campbelltown, in Penrith, second largest. We're now in Glenbrook in the Blue Mountains um, and, and Norwest and Central Coast. And there's 15 offices, including Hong Kong and Melbourne. Yep. So that's the short history, but I guess... And so what made you go on the stock exchange though? Because in 2017, you listed and I've been involved in um, that type of, um, call it um, that kind of uh, like adventure, we'll call it, right? And it's yeah. not a simple process. And why did you do it? It's all about goal setting, Alex. So I had... You wanted to have a public company? Is that what it was? I, I, so my, my primary business hero is Warren Buffett. Yep. When I grew up, I wanted to be Warren Buffett. And so I started the business with the view that we would grow the business and ultimately have a listed company. And that listed company would be a holding company, just like Berkshire Hathaway. So the holding company is called Kelly Partners Group Holdings. And my plan from the day we started and for many years before that was to ultimately have a listed holding company that would grow 
wealth for our investors in the way that Warren Buffett has, which is long-term compounding of capital by buying private businesses, which is what accounting firms are. Most people just don't think of them that way. Yes. And doing that for a very long time. And so um, basically we've been three years listed in June. We didn't need the money. We did, we, you know, but, but what drives me is I think that our industry often says one thing and does another. Mm-hmm. And that they don't run like a great company. They just run like, you know, there's four guys who are partners and four guys with a briefcase, right? Yep. And so I want to set a new standard and I want to disrupt our industry. And the best way to do that after being in the shadows for a decade is to do that in public so that people can mm-hmm. see, you know, the talent that I want to recruit to our organization, I want them to be able to see our organization. I believe that we're going into an unprecedented era of transparency where everything you say can be recorded, everything you can do can be filmed. You can see a lot of the older pillars of our society being caught up in ICAC and other investigations where it's quite obvious the way they build their wealth over time hasn't been that squeaky clean to be gentle. Mm -hmm. And I thought if we had a public company, we could just build something transparently that could inspire the best talent in our industry to come and join us. And so that's the ultimate mission to say, you know what, you can behave well and do well. And, you know, uh, mostly the reason chartered accounting firms aren't listed is two reasons. One, they couldn't behave in public the way they behave in private. I saw that in my, you know, decade I spent in other people's firms. And secondly, in a partnership, typically in a chartered firm, Alex, if there's you and I and there's partners, every time the partners see a dollar of profit, they want to rip out 51 cents each. That's a dollar and two. They're not, <laughs> yeah. they're not people that want to reinvest in the business and grow the capacity of the business, not just for themselves, but for their people and for their clients so that over time, what they're building has even more capacity to, to deliver what they claim they do. Yeah. In that structure, we'd have retained earnings. We could we would have permanent capital, we would have the infrastructure to be able to grow a great business, which is really what drives me. Yeah, sure. So then on that point, so how has um, the quest for growth changed since you've gone public? Because obviously the challenges shift a little bit. Um, So how has it changed? Yeah, so as a public company at the Headco, you have a lot more voices and there's more people with an opinion So it takes a certain Buffett-style independence of thought to be clear on what you're trying to do, to explain that consistently, and then to ignore all the people that keep harassing you with their latest thought bubble. You know, the number of people who will come to me and say, I think you should do this, or I think you should have done that, or don't you do this, and you can tell that they haven't done the work. You know, Henry Ford has this great saying, and, and that was that, Thinking is the hardest work in the world. And that's why so few people do any of it. And so with me, you know, this is, this is somebody who's gone and spent more than 1,200 pages. You know, there was, in my first book, there was 800,000 words. You know, that's 1,600 pages of text that was edited down to a 320-page book. I, you know, if I hadn't have been a chartered accountant, I'd have been a researcher because that's the way I kind of attack everything. So I like to think 
I enjoy trying to solve problems for my people and our clients and our organization. And there's a huge depth to what we do and what we know and how we're doing it. You know, a guy who's now working with us, wonderful guy came to me the other day and he said, you know what, Brett, you know, you and this organization like an onion. And I just keep peeling back and I keep finding more and more good stuff. I just didn't know. And I'm like, well, mate, I don't spend my time out there trying to explain it. Now as a public company, there's this balance between how much you need to share by law and how much that's competitive intelligence and, and intellectual property of, of your organization that you want to continue to grow before you, you share, if you like. Um, and so that's, you know, I've, I've had to be disciplined around my thinking um, and not let voices who haven't earned the right to be heard into my headspace. Mm-hmm. I think that's key, you know, to, to any young person or any person. Um, you hear a lot about mental health in our community. I think we spend a lot of time teaching people how to do push-ups, but we don't teach pe- people much about how to keep their mind focused. Um, and, and what would you advise to somebody who was like, hey, Brett, um, could you help me to get more focused? Yeah, so... What would you say? Well, typically, I would take them through the sort of planning process that I do and that I've shared with many people. I sit down, uh, you know, again, I'm a student of excellence. There's a guy, Michael Hill Jewelers, and Michael is a wonderful guy. He's written a book called Toughen Up. It's probably on my bookshelf back there. Mm -hmm. And and he has always talked about having a 30-year plan. So I have a written 30-year plan. I've developed it up based on what he recommended and some of the things I've heard from other people. And then each year I pull that down into a one-year plan and then I break that out into quarters and pull that out into months. And I'm very, very, very focused on what I'm trying to do today and how that fits into to the broader long-term context. And how um, long is that plan? Like, is it two pages, 10 pages, a page? Like, what's how long is it? Yeah, I have an Excel workbook, being an accountant. Somebody yep. loves Excel art. Um, and in there, I've got about 30 pages, Alex. But But to be clear... You know, I have a one-page plan for the year. Yeah. And then I have a, a one-page plan that it comes from. And then I have each, each area of my fitness goals, um, what my, 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 I guess, my prayer goals are, what my, you know, in terms of a spiritual life, what I'm trying to do from a learning perspective, which I know really drives me. Um, I, you know, I believe in that, that old saying that learning leads to earning. And if I'm not learning, I, I don't feel good. So I need to be reading all the time. Um, I've got a page in there that's got our wedding anniversaries. You know, what the gifts are, modern and ancient for wedding anniversaries. So I know where we are. I meet people and they're like, oh, I'm not sure how long we've been married. Um, again, trying to be very intentional and focused on, you know, where I am. I've got my kids' goals. So my three kids, you know, what are their goals for this year? I've got a page on my superannuation. So on, on my financial position. Um, yep. and, and, you know, a bunch of other random things. Basically, I just keep one workbook I call a flight plan. We do it with clients. Um, I've got one for the business and, and, and one personally. But, it, you know, we've always said that, that a private business is most affected by the attitude of the founder and, and that growing businesses are led by growing people. And so if you want to change a business, you've got to change the leadership. Most people think that means you need to get a new leader no, you need to get that leader to access their best self. So, you know, Warren, um, Warren Buffett was once an employee. Steve Jobs was once an employee. Nelson Mandela was once an employee. 
And so it was quite obvious when they were sitting there as an employee, they were delivering this level of themselves and later they delivered this level of themselves. And so as a leader in a business, you want to make sure you get the maximum capacity of your best self for to work every day. And you want to make sure you're doing that for your people. And so that's, to me, that's how I get focused. Um, and then I've got my diary sitting here. It's an ancient diary. It's got my list of things that I literally write down the night before. I yep. print out my diary from my outlook and I write them down again. I've always felt that anything I write down goes up my arm and into my brain. It, it <laughs> yeah, my sure. Brain. So then the, then the next morning I know I wake up and, I, and I've, I've already been thinking in the back of my brain about, I think while I sleep, about what I, um, what I need to do the next day. So none of that is particularly original. I've got an extremely organized version of that. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I must say I've never met anyone who's done anything significant who isn't, you know, you don't accidentally um, land in the you know, marathon of the Olympics or, or in anything else. So it's just a question of the standards. I played a lot of top-level sport. The question is, do you want to play, you know, in your business, are you trying to play park cricket or are you trying to play test cricket? You know, what level do you want to play? And, and, and ultimately, you're, you're the only one that's going to know whether you're playing at your best or whether you're, you know, mucking about. Yeah, sure. So you've um, been in business now for some time. How have you seen things change over the last 15 years in terms of same kind of marketing side of things or the business side of things, you know? So what are some of the biggest changes that like you've seen and kind of how are you adapting? Yeah, so Alex, it's a good one. I think too many people spend too much time focused on change in the sense that while change is important, um, very, very, very important. Um, the fundamentals don't change. And so my observation is that many people spend more time on the latest fad than they've ever spent on the fundamentals. So for example, if you say to most people, what are the four P's of marketing? We'll, we'll use marketing. It's your area and, and, mm -hmm. and we enjoy it. What are the four P's of marketing? What are they in your business? What's the one word that describes your proposition to your client and how have you, you know, what have you got an activity map or how have you activated that within your business? The answer is they can't answer those questions. You know, what is unique selling property? What is your unique selling proposition? What are your four P's? They, they just genuinely can't answer those questions. They might, they will skip over that and say, yeah, yeah, but I think we should put it out on Facebook. And it's like, well, what are we going to advertise if we haven't done the thinking? So, and you would see this. So let's say somebody comes to me and they say, I want to sell my company. I'll say, no problem. You pay me $20,000. We'll sit down. We'll review your business, your strategy, the whole top to bottom. And then we'll tell you where you're at. And we can work out a gap analysis between where you are, where you want to be and how to get there. Oh, no, I don't want to spend 20 grand. I've, I've got all that. And then you can say, okay, show me what you have. And normally most people's plan for their life or their business is not, is, is an empty, you know, is an empty page. It's not substantial. It's not deep. It's not well thought out. So the fundamentals, I believe of, you know, I love um, Al Rees and Jack Trout. So their fantastic book positioning, 22 immutable laws of marketing, 22 immutable laws of branding, whatever you like. All those books, there's probably never been any better books written on marketing and almost nobody's ever read them. And if they just sat down and read them before they came to see you, you would be able to help them so much more because your, your minds would be meeting at a, at a more similar level. So the first thing is, I think the fundamentals are much, 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 much more important than change. And then, and then 
if you've actually mastered those fundamentals, then think about change. So the biggest change most people could make today is mastering the fundamentals. The next <laughs> yeah. That'd be genuinely like, mate. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. It's like they're so focused on the new platform that they yeah. forgot about what is it that they stand for and what is the value that they're going to offer and how they're going to c- communicate that value effectively. Correct. So that it's a latest shiny thing, right? So I, I'm writing books on wisdom. Wisdom's a pretty out of fashion subject, right? A lot of people might want to be smart. They might want to do a deal, but they don't genuinely want to have depth of under. So wisdom means depth of understanding. So let's first go for a real understanding of the fundamentals. And then around change, there's again this great song, you know, old fashioned song, everything old is new again. And, um, and so, so much of what we're seeing, even these great tech businesses, Uber's a new way to be a taxi, Airbnb is just a new way to be a hotel. These businesses are not, they're not coming up with new, new businesses so often. They're coming up with better ways to, to address the fundamental consumer challenges that people have in their lives. <coughs> Afterpay is a great Australian example. Is Afterpay a new, new business? Absolutely not. It's a, it's, it's a new interpretation of what I did with a kid. When I was a kid, you'd go to the bike store and you give them 10 bucks and you come back next week and give them 10 bucks. Yeah, lay-by. That's a lay-by, right? <laughs> lay-by. So then that's not a criticism. You know, that's, that is a, a business that has is, is, that is understood the fundamentals, looked hard at the consumer's actual problem and come up with, has, has used new technology and, and ways to do things to address those. So for us, um, what, I, what I believe the biggest change is that faces most business owners that, that we deal with and that you probably deal with is that the superficial changes in their customers and, and in their employees versus the reality of who those people are. So we've got a great example today um, uh, in, in the media, George Floyd's, you know, a policeman's kneeled on his neck and killed him. There's a lot of outrage around race. But at the same time last night, there was an Aboriginal kid swept off his feet, face planted into a concrete floor by a police officer in broad daylight in Australia and 400 Aboriginal deaths in custody since 2001. Um, The stated position of most people today has become a a dopamine-inducing, you know, um, uh, touch on a screen, at best a like or a comment, um, but the, 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 I don't believe there's ever been a bigger gap between the stated values of people and the underlying realities of how they spend their time and money. Yeah, agreed. So what we see is the money. And so I say you are what you do when no one's watching. And if I take your accounts for the last three years, stick them in a zero file and show you exactly where you spent your money, biggest expense to smallest expense, but before I showed you that, I asked you to tell me where you spent your money. Those two things don't reconcile. And so that gap in psychology, you know, between who we, we are in fact and who we know we could be, that gap's always been the source of attention in people's psychological life. Um, and I think a business that can help close that gap um, has a very unique and powerful offer. So what we try to do with people's financial position is say, without judgment, hey, mate, you say you want to get to here with your business or your financial position or both. Uh, In fact, when we really do the work, you're here. And this gap is not what you you tell me you're doing. It's you're doing these things. So let's breach that gap and close that gap. 
what you get is a more whole person, a more focused person, somebody who's more congruent and aligned in terms of their values and their behaviors. That's a happier person in every realm of their life and their financial results go through the roof. And so that's, that's to me a way of understanding what's going on and addressing what I see, you know, as the biggest change is that people today are, are much more mouthy than they used to be. They've all got an opinion on everything and they're much more public with those opinions. Yeah. But I genuinely don't believe, you know, for example, Rotary clubs were community service clubs that, that did community service forever. They can't find a member. Um, if we're so much into community service, why are the community service organisations just dead? Yeah. Are we doing community service in a different way? Well, making a comment on Facebook is not necessarily, it's not, it's not necessarily not but it's not the concrete community service that we've seen in the past. Yeah, so, sure. So that's kind of the way I look at it from a you know a straight business point of view. The biggest game in town is the internet, not in the way that people think, but in my view, since 91 or whenever it came along, what that's doing is delivering a whole ability to have a much more transparent situation, to have a much more transportable situation, to make a service more personal, to make it more relevant, to allow people to work in a way that is more consistent with the way they want to live to allow a client or a customer to interact with a business in the more in the way that they might want to interact. Um, I do think, you know, you'd be a fool to imagine that the digital space isn't absolutely the most relevant thing or the biggest change. What I would temper that with though, is that we're still a, a world of people and people have changed a lot less than they think they have the dna of the <laughs> the drives yeah. ambitions and underlying issues that, that we have as humans are are very much the same and so um you know i'm, I'm i don't like to jump on the bandwagon of um you know it's just the world's changing you know i think it's an unbelievably self-indulgent uh, view to believe that the world is changing more today than it has in the past. You know, in 1918, when the Spanish flu hit, I guarantee the change that people experienced was much more significant than what we're experiencing right now. I believe that when World War I happened, that that was a much bigger disruption and uh, change than anything I've seen in my lifetime. World War II would fit the same category. Mm -hmm. um, the missile crisis in the US, da da da. So there's yeah. all these, I look back. Yeah, sure. And that's only the last hundred years, right? I look back and I think, well, I think things are changing, but, um, you know, I, when they, when somebody riding a horse first saw a car, that must've been, you know, something else. When I, when fridges replaced ice deliveries, that must've been amazing. <laughs> when people saw the first rocket, you know, we had oh, the radio stuff, even right. Yeah, or radio, TV, TV, you know, right. No, that's all, uh, you know, um, yeah. So what do you, so, that, so then on that point in terms of um, kind of the, the big ch changes that we're experiencing in our lifetimes, um, they're talking about this economic recession that's starting, started, that's about to happen is going to be the worst one since the great depression. So what are your thoughts on that? You know, as an accountant, as a founder, as a stock master, as a stock master, a stock market listed company, you have a lot of, I guess, insight. And what do you think um, the economy is going to do in Australia, like, and then beyond? Oh, 
It's a great question, Alex. I, I think that, you know, towards the end of last year, I, we listed in 17 because I believed that a recession was coming. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that we we're at the top of the cycle and that, you know, uh, that we, we live in a world that, that still has cycles. I didn't believe that Trump would do as good a job as he did with the economy in the US. I, I just didn't know that he would be prepared to be as forward thinking as he was. You know, lowering the tax rate was seen as a gift to his friends, but in reality, what it did was inoculate the US economy against um, attacks from China in the trade war or anyone else, and, and really done an unbelievable job of, of the US economy. Um, and so that meant the market kept kept going up. We, you know, we were always likely to have something happen. I thought it would come out of China. So when I was asked last year, I was selling a bunch of property and people said, well, I said, well, I think there'll be a, you know, a, a recession. I think there'll be an issue out of China. I thought that they had more debt in these local governments than, than was, again, it's not a transparent society. So it was, it was hard to know. It just, China just feels like a Ponzi scheme to me. Um, I don't know how long you can rule in that way. Um, can you blend, you know, authoritarianism and mind control with, with a market economy? I'm not sure you can. Um, so I just think it goes against human nature. So it can't persist things that, you know, things tend to return to equilibrium at some point. And they've certainly at, at an extreme. I think that's probably true to the U S at the moment that, that they're, you know, the ex extreme market economy is probably going to be tempered somewhat. Um, but again, what I would say, Alex, is, and to you and anyone listening, I say it to everyone all the time, is that it's a temptation in our time to, to always imagine what's happening to us is bigger, badder, worse, the greatest. You know, it was the, 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 you know, the greatest ever Olympics was Sydney 2000. And at the end of the next Olympics, this is the greatest ever Olympics. And then, you know, what Olympics is he going to turn up and say, you know, this was a very good Olympics. It was probably the fifth best we've ever had. You <laughs> kind, of, kind of want to have the, you know, it's like I want to have the greatest car, the greatest girlfriend and the greatest recession. It's like, well, you know, some things you don't want, you don't wish for. So I, I hope and pray that for all the people that have spent their lives building businesses, um, that this isn't as bad as the 91, 92 recession. Um, because I believe that governments are more uh, have better understanding as do the banks now as to how to react in a crisis in that, you know, in 91, 92, big companies fired a bunch of people, banks just wound up thousands and thousands of businesses. And I think most of them learned during the GFC that if they'd done what they did in 91, 92, it would have been a really, really, really poor outcome for, for the country. I do get a sense. So that's the first thing. Second thing, I get a sense that there's better leadership now. But I think that Morrison is, is a, um, unlike Keating, in the in the you know recession we had to have. Um, I, I'm not sure we we need to have a recession. I, I think if we work together as a country and we're well led, and that governments step up and do the, do the infrastructure spending that maybe they haven't done for the last twenty years, and push forward with some visionary projects that that we can well afford. We've got 3 trillion in our superannuation sector. We've got one of the most educated and certainly hardest working motivated workforces in the world that incredibly innovative and have led some of the greatest discoveries in, in humanity over the last 50 years. Mm. Then why should we feel down and out? We've got a massive resources sector that was just going to keep operating no matter what, because, you know, and, and I think the, the, 
you know, I think it was Al Gore. He had the what was his movie called? The Uncomfortable Truth, or the yeah, uh, whatever that was called. Yep. I, call it, I call it the uncomfortable truth. You know, the uncomfortable truth is that Australia's prosperity. An inconvenient is, truth. Sorry, that yeah. was coming to me. <laughs> so the inconvenient truth for Australia is that our prosperity is built on coal and iron ore and the mining sector. And I can tell you, if we turned off the iron ore and, and the coal and, and our mining sector tomorrow, then yeah, sure, we'll have a depression um, that'll be five times worse than anything you've ever seen anywhere. But Australia has this enormous... Um, wealth that is in the ground and that gets exported during recessions, depressions, and every other time, and does yeah. underpin our economy. And we're unbelievably, in the city, um, dismissive and ungrateful for, for for that sector. So, look, I am not a bear in the sense that um, that I believe that um, there'll be a, a depression. But I have said to all of our clients, and I'd say to you, Alex, and anyone listening. You should always in this situation prepare for a depression and and work for a recession. There's a great, you know, my second favorite business leader who's a massive inspiration to me is a guy called Bernard Arnault, who who founded and runs Louis Vuitton Moe Hennessy. And he has his great saying, be pessimistic in the short term and optimistic in the long term. And so I would describe my view as short-term pessimistic, long-term optimistic. So focus on what you can control in your business. Don't let people owe you a bunch of money. You know, somebody who doesn't pay you will send you broke. Um, don't go for the biggest client. Just go for a client that will keep paying you. Um, Over-service your client. Um, find new clients. Work a bit harder, you know, not to be uh, um, um, flippant about it. But, you know, the 12-hour day is pretty underrated in Australia. Um, it's incredibly effective because most people won't work even when they tell you they are. Um, there's a massive opportunity for anyone who really is prepared to work and commit to what they're doing. Um, I think the stock market's got it right in that, you know, I love this saying when Tiger Woods was down and out, Tiger Woods might be many things, but on a golf course, he's the, probably the greatest player ever. Roger Federer is a bit the same. It's a bad thing to bet against champions. And when you think of the US, they might be many things, but they have led more medical innovation than any nation in the history of humanity. And so if they decide, as they have, that this virus is a threat to their national security and they marshal all of their efforts, all of their capital, all of their scientists and all of those scientists of their allies towards an effort to come up with a solution for this situation, they may not find a solution in the next five minutes, but I would be very suspicious of anyone that suggested that they won't find a solution at some point. Now, if this has been a man-made um, altered virus, well, you know, maybe they won't. Um, but in the ordinary course of things, when the whole world is trying to solve a problem, I believe in people. I believe in in the, in the higher efforts of people. And this is a, you know, a global crisis that I think that there's many incredible people working to solve. And so I think as soon as that's done, um, you'll see a change in mood mm -hmm. and mood is so important, you know, working with people and I'll say, Hey, what do you think is the most important thing? I'll say, be focused. And what do you think is the next most important thing? Manage your mind. What do you think the next most important thing is? Have shitloads of energy. Yeah. 
right? And so when the whole scientific community globally, there's over a hundred efforts to come up with a vaccine, they're working 24 seven, some of the most wonderful, smart, thoughtful, innovative people in the world with limited capital being thrown at it. I think at some point they'll come to a solution. And when they do, you'll see everyone's, you know, I love, I love the idea of a depression where everyone's depressed. It's about mood and where everyone's mood steps up and if the governments can lead that, then, um, you know, I'm hopeful that the economy will reflect that. I think it's a turning point for Western nations around their values and how prepared they are to live those values. Um, and I, I'm optimistic there'll be a real resurgence. So what can people in business today do to be pessimistic in the short term and be optimistic in the long term? And you talked about a few things about, you know, having clients that are not too big that pay you and stuff like that. But like, okay, So the most practical thing you can do if you own a business is, if, is reduce the demand that you make on your business for money. That means that if you have a $2 million house with a $1.5 million mortgage, you should sell that house and you should buy a much smaller house with little to no debt. That's, the That's on the personal side of things, but from the business side of things, like is that the same kind of psychology of like well, kind of reduce your costs wherever you can without... Yeah, like so what kills, what, what kills most businesses is the owner's demand for cash from the business. You see, the biggest expense in most small businesses is the owner. And so the reason the owner's taking this money out is he wants to pay for his third Ferrari or a house that he has that he doesn't need to impress people he doesn't like. It's the number one issue facing private businesses. How much money the owner's trying to rip out of that business. Now, if you've got a moderate house that has got no debt on it or, or has got very minimal debt on it, then you won't need much money out of the business. So reduce your personal expenses first because that reduces the pressure you put on yourself and your business. Mm -hmm. Then go to your business and do exactly the same thing. You see, Alex, when I tell you, okay, look, mate, sell your house, reduce your expenses. Do you know what that owner then does? He walks into his business. Imagine I'm on this screen, I'm at home, and I walk into this business. And then I say, mate, in your business, reduce your expenses. Well, he's got some pain going on over, over here because he's just turned around to his wife and said, right, we're going to sell the house. Or she's, if she's running the business, she's turned around and said, right, we're going to, we're going to sell an extra car. We're mm -hmm. going to sell a holiday house. We're going to get rid of this. We're going to get rid of that. We're going to reduce our cost of living dramatically. Then once he's done that or she has done that, they go together into their business and it's very easy for them to do that in their business because now they're feeling the pain. So they go into the business and they go, right, we're not spending on anything we don't need. We're going we're gonna to watch what we're doing with our money. We're, so number one, don't spend any on anything you need. Number two, make sure any client you're dealing with, you know exactly what the payment terms are. You're getting some money up front, some money as you go, and you do some money at the end. So if they're not paying you at some point, you don't go broke. And then where you come in, Alex, so at number three, is that most people pull back on marketing. And it's a massive mistake. You see, when the market pulls back, everyone will do the same thing. They'll all stop marketing. So what I've been doing during this, during this um, downturn is I've, I've done a whole bunch of things. I've launched a new book that just happened to be, you know, a, a thing of time. I did a program, a 90-day program for people called Fire Up 90. I'm up to date. Com. Yes, fireup90.com. So go check it out. Yeah. So, so, so to our people to try and get them fired up, the owners, to focus on themselves. 
I did a little version for kids, a 30 day one for kids called uh, Fire Up Kids 30. Then we did a grow program in a closed. So my grow program is normally $15,000 over nine half day sessions. I did for free for our clients in a closed Facebook group. So yep. that's my board behind me there. Every Friday morning I do an hour in a closed Facebook group. I've got 500 clients doing that. Yep. Uh, and then, and then I went out and I said, right, I want all of our directors. There's 42 directors. I want you to personally contact every one of your top 50 clients. And we did a massive daily effort around job keeper, job seeker, every type of government stimulus, a whole new page on the website that's got, um, that's daily updated for the latest initiatives. And then we've also launched our podcast, which is up to about the 20 or 22nd. It's called the be better off show by yep. Kelly partners. And I've been doing two episodes a week of that. One's one of those um, episodes is called smashing the crisis. Um, we've also then put into the market. I'm doing a, a 10 minute segment every Thursday morning at 11.15 on 2GB with Ray Hadley answering questions from small business owners on exactly like this, you know, what should I be doing in my business? Mm-hmm. Now, so if you think about that, plus, 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 right? If, if you think mm-hmm. about those efforts, I made, a, I made 52 accountant jokes, put them in a, a deck of cards and sent them out to all of my people and make sure that they were healthy, wealthy, wise and didn't forget to have a smile and have a laugh. Yeah. Uh, so we've doubled down. I'm probably working 50% more hours than I have on average over the last few years. Um, and, you know, I guess that's, you know, controlling what you can control and taking action where you can take action is the game, you know, and then I'm, I'm standing behind the results that we can generate in terms of yeah. what we charge. Um, I look, obviously, um, I'm very biased on not stopping the marketing spend because, because I think across the board, like, kind of since the coronavirus hit, everybody just paused, but there were some organizations that doubled down and they stood out and they stood forward and they helped. And I think that's um, a huge, um, it's a huge advantage. I should have mentioned that. For companies that can do it. Yeah, like we've been doing the social content through Insta, Facebook, LinkedIn, um, together with podcasts like micro videos, little comments, blah, blah, blah. Now, a lot of, again, you know, a lot of companies are marketing to try and get, you know, they're trying to get a first date before they've had the first date type of thing. Um, we still believe, you know, the reason I love Buffett and, and Bernard Arnault is they're both people that believe that CEOs should be, should have an investor's mindset. And that is that, you know, you invest today and over time you get a return. Um, you shouldn't be too anxious about exactly when you get that return. Um, and, and so, you know, I guess if you stop marketing, then there'll be a time where people, where there'll be a gap in your revenue, in my view. So yeah, for sure. We've been pretty careful, and we're and we're working harder around the the impact of the, of those efforts and and how to measure them and make sure we're getting results. Um, and so, what do you advise to people then on? Like they're looking to cut costs, you know, just to be pessimistic and to protect themselves. They want to spend some stuff on marketing. The marketing, half the marketing, let's say, is on the brand side of things. So it's like, like it becomes like almost an investment in the relationship. How much should they be investing in marketing? And as an accountant, you can actually provide this kind of information, right? Yeah, you can see it, right? So look, I, I think it starts with, um, 
Do you think you should get a direct return on your marketing? My view is yes, you should get a three to one return on your marketing. You should be able to measure it. Um, but that means that you have to, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, I'm doing that for awareness. That's cool. So where's your sales process and who's going to actually make a call to a prospect to sign them up? So, you know, what I would say is that when I say, you know, look at your costs, mostly most people haven't looked at their electricity bill ever. They haven't looked at their mobile bill. They've got a stationary bill where people are just ordinary stationary by the ton. And, you know, they'll look at marketing because it might be a good number, a good size number, and they think that there's something to save there. But often the savings are just, firstly, overhead have feet. So there's a lot of people often in organisations that don't do anything. Nobody ever bothers to look. There's always um, spending on stuff you don't need. So you just stop all that. Yeah. Um, but I don't see, you know, it's like saying, well, I'm not going to have employment contracts for my people anymore because it costs me money to, to produce those. That's ridiculous. And marketing is, is as essential as an HR agreement with a, you know, employment agreement with a, with an employee. So um, I'd want a three to one return, but I'm prepared to make every person in my organization, a salesperson in the sense of saying that I want you to be asking people, do you have a great accountant? Is there any chance we could talk to you about your accounting? Now that's got to be led from the top. You know, if, if the owner's not prepared to sell and in accounting, that's just, you know, unheard of, yep. um, then, then you might as well not market. You know, yeah. marketing, I, I don't know why there are the two words. I don't see them at all. And so, you know, um, you know, if somebody's worried about their return and, and this again, Alex, what I would say to you in terms of selling your business, you know, if, if, if somebody's worried about what they're spending on marketing, the private businesses are most impacted by the attitudes and behaviors of the leader, of the owner. And so the very first thing I'd ask an owner if I was selling marketing services is, hey mate, so I'm selling tax services. I ask them, hey mate, how much tax did you pay last year and how much did you enjoy that? Uh, too much, didn't enjoy it much, great. If I was mm -hmm. selling marketing, I'd be asking them, how much time do you spend each day on prospecting? How many customer visits do you do each week? And how much have you sold yourself personally in the last day, week, month, three months? And when you get an answer, which is not sure, don't know, don't do any, don't measure it, then you basically got to say, look, mate, if you want to work with us, we're going to need you to personally commit to actually doing some action. So I want you to prospect for half an hour every day. I want you to do three customer visits a week. I want you to personally sell your services to some dude or do that. Because if you are not prepared to do that, then there's no point us working with you because your organization is not going to be a marketing organization, not going to be a sales organization. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's why I'm so passionate about, you know, you start with the leader, the person and their, yeah. their behaviors um, because, you know, a person that understands the value of, of selling and marketing, they'll engage you and they won't turn it off, you know, when things get a little bit tough out there in the economy because, you know, we are signing up as an, you know, as an organization, Kelly Partners right now are signing new clients in every one of our businesses. And we're signing new clients because we're active while yeah. our industry is not. Yeah. And so there's nothing you can do as an organization to solve that problem if the business doesn't want to be active with you. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So just um, one final question before... um. We wrap it up because I'm just conscious of time. Um, how many hours are you working these days since the c c coronavirus kind of started? Because I'm sure, well, because yeah, yeah, 
you just say like 50% kind of extra hours and how do you manage the energy? Yeah. So that? Alex, it's fair to say that I work all the time. I don't work on Sundays. I never have, but at every other moment of time, I, I regard myself as working. Um, I work at least 12 hours a day, five days a week. I always have. Um, I'm probably averaging 14 plus at the moment. Mm-hmm. I enjoy it a huge amount. I don't feel any stress, bother or from it, I must say. I absolutely. Um, and so on Saturdays, I've got the kids and I'm trying to do some things with the kids, but they know I've always got my phone with me. I am always thinking about my clients, our people in the business. Yep. And I, you know, I, I don't like gender stereotypes because I am somebody that can do two things at once, notwithstanding that I'm a man. Um, I'm and- sorry, but I can't. I try. <laughs> I just can't. <laughs> I'm part of the stereotype. <laughs> Some guys can't. I, I'm, a, I'm weird. I can do two things at once. <laughs> you know, if you phone me and I'm watching my son play sport and, and I know it's you, I'll take the call. Yeah, mate, no worries. So that you feel heard. Yep. Um, yep. Give me an hour. I'm, I'm at Tom's basketball or whatever I'm doing. I'll give you a call. You know, I'll do, I'll do what I'm doing and then I'll give you a call. Like there's so many little gaps in the day where you're not doing anything in particular. Sure. Um, and so look, you know, but again, I think it's a bit of a false distinction between work time and play time. If, you know, I love the expression that Buffett's always used that he tap dances his way to work because it's what he loves to do. So I, I, I have, you know, I love to read. I love art. I love some sport. I like to play golf. I like, I love to snow ski. It's hard to do on a moment's notice, but, mm-hmm. but primarily I like to help people and my business gives me a vehicle to really do that. And so I never really feel like I'm, I'm, I'm sort of working and I feel sorry for people that, that have this very hard distinction between, you know, I'm working, that's drudgery. And then I'm partying and that's life. You know, I've often had people say to me, Hey, you should get a life. Um, but you know, Beck and I, the kids, we, we feel with 40 partners, 250 people and 8,000 clients that we've built, you know, a, a, a life and it's, yeah. And it sounds fun too. It sounds fun. But I mean, like I am pretty biased because that's how I see life as well. So <laughs> like yeah, I wouldn't have it any other way. Correct. You've got interesting clients. I, I, my clients have involved me in things that I would never have seen in a hundred lifetimes. I've been to places all around the world, seen things, learned things. And for me, I'm primarily driven, you know, from, I guess the life of the mind. Um, and so that to me is amazing. You know, I feel very privileged to, to be, um, to be in that position. And, you know, I think it's always helpful that, um, you know, that old saying, when you got a sore leg, um, just look at the bloke who's got no leg, you know, like there's always somebody uh, worse off than you. And it's easy for us to forget that. All right, Brett, thanks so much for um, the time today. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, should they go to brettkelly.com.au? Is that the best place um, to see some of your content? Kellypartners.com.au. Give me a call. There's books at brettkellybookshop.com.au or .com. Google. But um, LinkedIn, send me a message. If there's anything I can do to help, happy to help. And Alex, I really appreciate our chat today. 
Yeah, it's been really good. And yeah, thanks for sharing. Um, there's some fantastic information in there. And um, yeah, like I really appreciate it. Um, okay. Have a good yeah, day. Have a coffee soon. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'd love to, mate. I'd love to. I'd love to. Um, I'm back in Sydney next week. Um, so maybe then. Um, but yeah, let's, um, let's keep chatting. Thanks, Brett. See you. Thanks, thanks for listening to the Growth Manifesto podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please head on over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. For more episodes, please visit growthmanifesto.com forward slash podcast.